This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sritama from the AD program. And I'm Miling from the MR program. Welcome back to GSAP Conversations. This Friday, we are listening to architect Jesse Le Cavalier in conversation with CCCP student Emma McDonald. In today's episode, Jusila Cavalier shares his research around the global emergence of new public infrastructures. He analyzes the effect of giants like Walmart and Uber, moving materials, people, and data through cities. He works to engage the public on new types of contemporary infrastructure and logistics by shedding light on their underlying meanings, interrelations, and purposes. We will also hear more about how he manages his practice and research in parallel. Thanks for listening. I'm Emma McDonald, a second-year CCCP student here at Columbia GSAP. Today, I'm speaking with designer Jesse Le Cavalier in advance of his lecture at the school September 16, 2019. Le Cavalier of Le Cavalier R&D is an associate professor of architecture at the University of Toronto and the author of The Rule of Logistics, Walmart and the Architecture of Fulfillment, a close look at the corporation's stores, distribution centers, databases, and inventory practices to make sense of its spatial and architectural ramifications. I thought we might begin with the rule of logistics and work our way to some of its broader relevance that you might be discussing tonight. Um, So this research on the implications of contemporary logistics on our landscapes and uh, the scale of Walmart in particular has proven to be prescient given that it began over 10 years ago from what I understand. How would you describe a landscape of fulfillment? I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I'm using landscape not necessarily in the kind of landscape painting tradition, but more in the cultural landscape. So the, the landscape as the kind of large collection of a series of different elements and forces and scales. And the landscape of fulfillment indulges in, a, in the temptation of the double entendre of fulfillment. It's hard to avoid the, this... And I love actually the double meaning is significant. So on one hand, we have this this continuous network of supply chains uh, that erode familiar boundaries like urban and rural and building and system. But then we have this other layer that underpins it, which is about the notion of desire and and seeking mm-hmm. out a deeper, meaningful purpose somehow. And so I think what's been significant to try to monitor is the way or to, to engage is the way that that notion of uh, fulfillment is getting produced and then pushed on to a, to a public. And I think this is what I'm trying to understand is the, the elements that are underneath that and the kind of physical and infrastructural pieces that are making that possible. To me, um, perhaps partly because of the double entendre, this research brings up several questions in relation to the contemporary state of our climate, and again with language for one, um, terms such as managed retreat, for example, really speak to this kind of culture of efficiency that we live in as architects, as citizens. Um, And I was wondering how you relate our expectation of convenience and immediacy, really, that comes to the fore um, in this research to how, how climate change is being kind of approached and acted on in the field. No, absolutely. I think this is um, these connections. I think are becoming clearer, and I think that's really important. I think one of the things that this question raises is one of value, and how, for some reason, we have come to value that level of absurd expediency. 
And, and I guess I say we, I mean, we're talking about still a very narrow segment of the consumer uh, here, but I think that it's, 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 it is more pervasive than, than maybe we're willing to admit. I mean, I think this is this culture, a culture of efficiency and expectation of speed is certainly um, increasingly common. But, but I think what, if we just talk about this sector, let's say, of like e-commerce and Amazon and just-in-time delivery, I think what these, these actors want to do is to make the consequences of, of, of a consumer choice as remote as possible. And so those sort of externalizing tendencies are increasingly the, the things that are accelerating an increased global temperature. And so, mm-hmm. for example, the um, think of all the things that we get quickly or that I get quickly, for example, my streaming service or something. Um, the data industry is responsible for about 2 or 3% of the world's energy, which is the same as the airline industry. Wow. So it's the staggering amount of energy use and also corresponding carbon output and it also is being developed in these new building types that we've never really had to think about before the data center the server farm these are these are kind of new infrastructure that's come on the scene and is is um, rapidly is contributing certainly to this this uh, climate acceleration and then as a kind of perverse consequence as as the polar ice is melting new shipping routes are opening up, which makes it even faster to get things. So there's this kind of cycle that's happening because of this, these, these, these trends. So I think that's just one, uh, one example. And I think that, that being here today at GSAP, uh, I've been with the Urban Design Group, who's mm-hmm. been looking at, and it's part of the larger Green New Deal initiative at, at GSAP, and I think this is a really positive thing to be asking these big questions about, about the kind of structural transformations that are necessary to take this on, but I think also it's, it's pointing to the challenges that we have as people affiliated with the design world to explain and think about how we, explain what we do and also figure out how we align ourselves to be more equipped to engage these questions. Definitely, and consider those questions of, of value within the field as well. Um, how do you see the, this uh, culture of, of efficiency and that kind of expectation being forced to adapt? I think it's positive that there's more willingness to accept other metrics of success. I think this seems like a very positive direction. So that certain countries are now willing or or promoting other models of of growth and success, not around GDP, but around overall happiness indexes and things like that. I mean, as part of my um, excursions into this notion of fulfillment, I've only sort of scratched the surface, but this amazing discipline of happiness studies becomes this really revealing set of, of psychological and sociological of data <laughs> around assumptions about positive correlations between, let's say, economic well-being and happiness. And maybe it's right. not surprising for us, but, but it's scientifically proven then that if just because you have more economic utility doesn't make you happier necessarily. And so I think this is something that people are starting to realize, and I think that's starting to become part of the conversation uh, more and more. So I think, for example, something like the, the Oslo Architectural Triennial's theme of degrowth seems like a very, yes, very uh, sure. effective and positive step. On the same kind of topic of climate, uh, your research discusses the fact that Walmart 
has at times, among other corporations, but Walmart has stepped into a role that would typically be expected of a public institution rather than a private for-profit actor, um, such as contributing to relief efforts following natural disasters. How do you see this, uh, this kind of public-private question um, as showing itself between these questions in architecture? Well, I think it, it maybe it has to do with what we might think about that, um, the private entity. I mean, I think we tend to think of public-private partnerships as being a kind of market sector and public sector, but I think we could think about a, the, the private being maybe a different kind of configuration, for example. I mean, I think what we're starting to see, and I, I think in, for example, the, um, the Trump infrastructure plan is really um, pretty transparent about promoting the private sector, but the kind of market-based private sector, and I think this could be this could be a place where we where where the design world could try to articulate uh, an organizational approach that would create entities that might be able to also partner with public public entities to try to implement these larger scale um, projects. So mm-hmm. I think that the confrontation with the limitations of client-based practice is something that maybe we we start to think about also and like what that what that has to do with um, these these larger climate questions uh, or these these larger shifts in in authority. I mean, I could talk a lot about the way that Walmart is, for as an example, starts to kind of take on these other roles. And I, I think, um, but I'll leave it at just to say that I think they don't have a public responsibility, right? So they're able to do things, you know, based on their own desires so, or their own needs. So so with the story about Hurricane Katrina, for example, they could. They can make a call about needing to evacuate New Orleans much sooner than the National Weather Service because their obligation is to themselves and their shareholders, not to the public. And so I think that um, it's, it seems like this shift is also related to uh, where we where we look at responsibility and, and some kind of standard of care for a larger public. Right. And again, a question of, of kind of value and priority mm-hmm. and different, mm-hmm. showing itself in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been talking about uh, mostly the kind of American context, and I know you're uh, teaching at the University of Toronto Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Are you kind of considering uh, these logistics concerns within national parameters or borders, or do you see them crossing those lines? The work of the book, for example, is is mostly contained just for for kind of methodological practicality in in the American story, but, but absolutely the logistics world is a global Concern and it's 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 really difficult to um, to separate and in fact it's another reason why I think the the current the, like the Trump infrastructure plan sort of misreads infrastructure because it puts so much pressure on states to cover these these network costs so how do you start to take something that's a super state network and break it down into smaller pieces but yeah. but yeah definitely I think where I'm hoping to take the work is also toward um, toward more of an attention to the global the global dynamics. Um, and I think what, what we're also increasingly aware of is that there's not a sense of, you know, there's not like an away anymore. You know, right. we're increasingly becoming aware of the consequences of all of these kinds of concerns. And, and it's shocking to see evidence of how recent that awareness is. is. You know, I think even it's like projects or, or ideas from, from not that long ago where there was, there was a kind of an understanding that if it was out of sight, it was just somehow away. Yeah. Which is completely connected to the process of these logistics in right. the first place as yeah. well, which is fascinating. And I think this is this was again one of the, the motives of something like Amazon is to, to make it as easy as possible not to think about 
where any of that stuff uh, is coming from or going to. Um, in terms of the logistics of your practice, uh, how do you, how is this uh, kind of approach to research situated within projects of design, within teaching? Yeah, I think that's um, something that I'm still trying to, to figure out. I mean, I, I, but I appreciate the question because it, because it's I'm trying to think of the practice as having these two sides to it so to just to sort of think of it as a research and design practice um, to not see this one thing as the thing I do when I'm doing my research and this other thing I do when I now do design but to see them as being related and mutually informative and I think what for me one of the exciting things but challenging things is to figure out how to see the relationships or how what to take from one thing to the other because I, do, I don't think necessarily that, that like corporate retail logistics is something that we necessarily need to like learn techniques from. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's like really fascinating intelligence there that is obviously making a big impact. And so what, do we, what can we do about that? And, and where do we, is there space where we can intervene? Or is there space where we sort of deturn? Or is there space where we sort of undermine? And I think I've been trying to to be sort of flexible about that and to not see it only as a kind of practice that has to be in a counterposition, but a practice that could be um, maybe in operating kind of parallel. Like I like the notion of, I've been trying to think of it as a paralogistical practice. Mm-hmm. So to think of it as, I like the prefix because it suggests the sort of alongside of, but then also kind of like in a paramilitary sense, like preparedness, <laughs> you know, yes. that you're sort of anticipating something. But because I, 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 there's another, I think, really important strain, which is the more sort of scholarly counter-logistical presence, which is a kind of um, understanding this is something that's much more about a, a res- the need to resist a kind of power structure. And I think that design is, is slipperier. Like, I was just at a conference with a lot of... Actually, it wasn't a conference. It was an opening for a group show, a group, group show of artists working on the topic. And it was really exciting uh, to see the way that people in the art world take on this question in a way that was different than the equally exciting way that like scholars take on the question because there was a, it seemed to me there was a willingness to kind of inhabit a, a, the murky areas a little bit. And I think designers, architects, urban, urban designers, we have this constant challenge of figuring out how to kind of navigate those, those waters. And so I, I think for me it's been um, trying to find ways to um, work within these topics but not necessarily on the topics directly through design. So in other words, like I'm not necessarily um, setting out to design a better fulfillment center, but right. to say, you know, within the world of all these material flows, what what might we do about this? And I would say that what I'm working toward is to try to think more and more about how infrastructure and logistics can become a public question. So something like the supply chain is really like it's buried. You know, we never see it. It's certainly not um, a public infrastructure the way that civic works of, of earlier eras might exist. Like if, if one were to think of, let's say, the, like the Roman aqueduct, um, of course, obviously imperial issues and everything notwithstanding, there was a sort of, there's a public dimension to that. And this is a kind of crude summary, but I think that, that uh, the notion about a kind of civic work doesn't exist with our current logistical structures, which right. are equally infrastructural, but not civic. And so I, I'm wondering how we can sort of engage those uh, and what we might do to kind of like make those kinds of things more public or civic somehow. But it comes back to these questions about like public and private relationships. Uh, and then also significantly, I think, of material and physical language. Like actually, how do we design them? Which I think is a really key piece that we tend to kind of overlook when we think about infrastructure. Right. How can we 
understand and work against, but be in dialogue with that mm-hmm. in, in a mm-hmm. productive, not to use the language mm-hmm. of the topic way. Mm-hmm. It's hard to um, avoid the language of the topic. I mean, I think that's what for me has been kind of interesting, exciting, frustrating is that there's one becomes really attentive to all of the ways that one's language gets conditioned by all of these uh, things repeatedly, whether um, without, without meaning to, you're um, using languages of efficiency and economics and, and growth and progress and all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, looking forward to where it goes next. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.